<laughs> Excellent. Good morning, everyone. Well, I'm Petian. Uh, just would like to welcome along the field any visitors to us, any visitors to church. It's your first time. Excellent. And, and hope that you are blessed and you really are uh, getting something meaningful out of today. And it's worth your while to be here. We are. Hey. On. Green. <laughs> How's that? All right, we're kicking off. Hey. All right, can I grab a just a handheld mic to muck around with? I'll be at the lectern for now, and then if you guys can stitch me up with one of those, that'll be awesome. Thanks. And then I have to undress myself first. <laughs> You can play some music if you want, and I can, <laughs> can do it all to a lot of appropriate full way we're at. All right, how's this one? Have we got him on? One, two. One, two, one, two. Yep, sounds like it. Can everyone hear me? Even in the cheap seats in the back? All right, good. We are on. It's kicking off a new series today in the Book of Ruth. Now, I, I'd like to say at the outset that um, this Book of Ruth is among the finest of literary works that you will encounter in human existence. You know, Christians and non-Christians alike have looked at this and said that it is among the grandest of literature. You know, it's on par with what you'd find in, in the classics, even though it's much shorter, but Jane Austen type stuff. Uh, it's, it's phenomenal. And we have the privilege over the next few weeks to simply walk through this story. And I'm going to call it a story, but it's, it's, it's an event. It's truth. It really happened, and it's got a real strong message to us. And we're going to walk through that throughout the next few weeks. And we're doing this as a church in conjunction with Pathway Women. So if you are in a small group, uh, a women's small group that either formed specifically for this or, or you're just doing this um, as part of your regular small group, you may be journeying through this little study guide that's called the Gospel of Ruth. It goes hand in hand with a book that's called The Gospel of Ruth. Um, some of you are already working through this, and I want to encourage you. Good on you for taking it on and, and looking into it. Um, the sermon series that's now going to start flowing for the next few weeks will uh, not be on this book as such. This is, in some ways, a lot more gender-specific that, that looks at the book of Ruth and issues for women not only women, but specifically for women in particular. The sermon series will be a little bit broader than that. We want to sort of just look at it and apply it to all of life, uh, to all of us. And if you want to work through that, either as a small group or as an individual, there's just a little study guide, which is a condensed version of the one that Pathway Women are using. It's out on the shelf on the outside. Feel free to grab one of these to take notes and use for discussions in your groups if you want to. Uh, and then there's also these two that 
are also on the shelf out there for any small groups or individuals or households who would like to just discuss this content further. We want to put some stuff out there, enable you, empower you and equip you to engage with this series in whatever way you wish. And so it's all out there in the foyer on a shelf there that has Ruth written next to it. And please go have a look and, uh, and help yourself to some of these resources. For today, we're in Ruth chapter 1, which kicks off like this. And I'm not going to read the whole reading word for word that Karen read to us, but I will display it and just talk to it as I go along. They say a good sermon has, has three points. This is not going to have points. I'm really just going to walk through the story like you would watch a movie. Stop, think, and do my best to let you see your life through the eyes of the characters whom we are going to encounter in today's story. Let's relate to them, feel them, learn from them, grow with them, even hurt with them as we walk through this. Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled. Just a short comment that says, this is in a time in the history of God's people that was dark. God's people were leaderless. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. A lot of crime, a lot of violence, a lot of cheating, a lot of corruption. Nothing really went right. Their country, their nation, their people did not work as it should. These are dark days in the life of God's people. In those days, there was a famine in the land. Famine in those days would not be like famine to us. It's not a matter of relying on tinned food to get by. Uh, people died. The threat was real. People watched their children die of starvation. And so in this story, we meet a family in Bethlehem in Judah who encounter this famine and decide it's time for us to move. Out of fear that they may not survive this famine, them or their children, they move to a place called Moab. Moab, I won't say much, but all I will say is that for these people, this family, Elimelech, Naomi, Marlon, Killian, mum, dad, two boys who are going to move, uh, they are Israelites. They are moving from Israel to Moab. Israelites and Moabites weren't friendly with each other. They were quite hated by each other. You need to imagine perhaps in our day and age the, 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 the relationship between uh, us as the West and the militant Islamic world, the relations between the US and Al-Qaeda. That's the kind of animosity, the, um, the hatred that existed between these two people groups. It's a big step for this man, Elimelech, to take his wife and his two boys to move to Moab and see if they can escape the famine there. But they do it. And as they are there, tragedy strikes. Naomi's husband dies and she's left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, Orpah Ruth, and then Marlon and Killian also died. 
And then chapter 1 verse 5 finishes with this simple line, Naomi was left with her two, without her two sons and her husband. Let's stop here for a bit. This is where I want us to feel the pain and the hurt of this first character that we get to do with today. I remember once as, as a boy, my grandmother telling me uh, she has lost a son at war. He was in his early 20s, uh, her oldest son uh, and my grandfather's. And she said to me, there is no <clears throat> greater pain that a person can suffer in this life than to put your child in the grave. Nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing. I want us to imagine this, this woman, Naomi, who I'm just symbolically illustrating with this picture. Two sons. All she had. And a husband. She had to put them in the grave in Moab. Not only that, that line finishes with she's left as a woman without a husband and two sons. Now, in the world that she occupied, that meant you were utterly, utterly, utterly hopeless. This is a culture and these are times in which women totally, totally dependent, depended on males, on their husbands, on their sons, and on those family relations that they had. She was, in our context, someone who would live in our country, who's not a citizen, who's not a permanent resident, who cannot work, who cannot come under government welfare, and who knows no one. Her situation is incredibly desperate. And here's where I want to ask the first question for us today to consider about our own lives. How would you have responded if you were her? In particular, what would have been your feelings towards God? Remember, she's a woman of faith. She's someone who's a believer. For all I know, for all I know today, you are facing suffering of some kind, and perhaps the question is relevant to you. How are you responding to the suffering in your life? What are your feelings towards, towards God as you face this, as you encounter this? You know, that's the key question that we now get to wrestle with throughout this whole chapter that now follows. Chap verses 1 to 5 just sets the scene. It just portrays and paints to us a picture of this woman, Naomi and her incredible uh, predicament. From there, she decides, well, the famine has been broken in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, ironically, means house of bread. There's deep irony in the story. <laughs> there is no bread in the house of bread. There's a famine. The famine was broken uh, after many years of Naomi living in Moab, and she decides, at a logical level, the best thing to do is to move back to Bethlehem, go back to the land of Israel where she's from. And so she decides to set out uh, on a dusty road back to Bethlehem and her two daughters-in-law 
go with her. And then somewhere along the road, Naomi turns to her daughters-in-law and she says to them, go back. Go back, each of you, to your own homes, your own father, mother, your families. And she says these amazing words in verse 8 and 9, which I'll read word for word. May the Lord show you kindness as you've shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. There are some key words here that we're going to look at later. Kindness, rest. These are concepts which will come in week two and week three. There's only one thing I want you to see today out of these words that Naomi speaks to her two daughters-in-law. You know, on the one hand, it seems that what she's doing is perfectly reasonable, logical, understandable, even loving. To say to these two daughters-in-law of hers, go back to your own homes. However, at another level, this reveals something to us about this woman, Naomi, that is a fatal flaw in her life at this point. Her faith in God is at an all-time low. You know, we may sympathize with her. We may say, look, if we were her, perhaps we would do exactly the same thing. But the bottom line is that at this point in time, as she stands on that dusty road and she talks to her two daughters-in-law, she is saying, as she says to them, turn back, I am not confident that God can provide for us. I'm not confident that God can look after us, that he can can see a way forward for us. I'd rather have you turn back. And this failure of hers becomes more apparent, really, as as the story goes on. We read that she kisses them goodbye, they weep, and they say initially no. We're going to stick to you. We're going to go back with you to your people. But Naomi is persistent. She says, no. Am I going to have more sons? Am I going to actually make a way for you? How the heck am I going to care for you? She says to them. And then towards the end of this bit, in the end, the last line there, she says something incredibly staggering. She says, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. God has turned against me. Notice that she she does not doubt that God is all-powerful, that God is sovereign, that God controls all things, but she doubts the fact that God good. More particularly, she doubts whether God is good to her. And I want to suggest today, I wonder if that is true for some of us here. Perhaps because of the way you grew up, or for whatever reason in your life, you, you, you don't doubt that God is real, you know, you'd say, well, there is something such as a a higher being, a a power, 
someone who is all-powerful and in control of all things. But as I look into the circumstances of my life, I don't see the goodness of God in that. Sure, maybe God may be good in theory out there somewhere, but, but in here, in, in, in my life, I don't feel it. In here, I, I'm still lonely. I'm still depressed. I'm still hurt. I'm still confused. I still do not see a future for myself. I doubt that in here, in what I face, in my future, in my road ahead, that, that God is good. I'm not feeling it. You know, the good thing that we must give Naomi is that she is brutally, brutally honest. And this woman does not beat around the bush. <laughs> so often in, in, in our Christian lives, we fake it brilliantly. Very rarely would, be as, would we be as, as brave, perhaps, and as, as straightforward to say that I doubt that God is good to me. And yet, perhaps today, if you are in such a place, can I encourage you to be a little bit like her? Get real with God. Pretending is not getting us anywhere. It didn't get Naomi anywhere. In fact, I think it's only because of her brutal honesty and realness with God that she starts doing business with God. This whole story is now an interaction of how God changes her, how God shows her new things, how God gets real with her back. As much as she gets real with God, he is getting real with her, and so with us too. Be real with God about how we feel, about what we think, in particular about our suffering, in particular about the things that are not right in our lives. So the story moves on. We read that after Naomi again encourages the, the girls to go back, eventually Orpah, one of them, decides to go. And this probably gives Naomi some courage. She says to Ruth, look, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. Again, we see how low this poor woman's faith is at this stage. Notice that she says, look, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Now, at this point, she would rather have these two young women not worship Yahweh, the God whom she worships. You know, this is like saying, for us, to anyone here who, who isn't a Christian or to someone who's, who's come on the bus to say to one of those kids, you know what, I'm so inconfident that being a Christian is a good thing that I'd rather you not become one. I'd rather you turn back. She is more confident at this point, Naomi, that, that Chemosh, the, the Moabite god, will serve Ruth and Orpah better than what Yahweh, the Israelite god, would. She's, she's de-evangelizing Ruth, if you like. 
But of course, after she's done this, there's, <laughs> there's a massive turnaround. There's something about this Moabite woman that Naomi grossly underestimates. And this is where we turn and the shift in the story moves to Ruth for the rest of this chapter. Ruth replied, and I'm going to read this out word for word. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I'll die, and there I'll be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. (laughs) There's a few things we have to get about what this phenomenal woman is saying at this point. The key to it is in the bit that says, where you die, I'll die, there I'll be buried. For ancient people to say that was a massive statement. It meant that they were totally and permanently committed to a new people, to a new life, to a new future, to a new truth. In saying, I'll be buried where you'll be buried, Ruth is saying, I renounce my Moabite citizenship, I renounce my people, my gods, my worldview, my everything, and I'm committing to this. We have to ask the question at this point in the story, why on earth would she do that? What possesses, what what drives this person to make such a declaration? A few options. Maybe it's because she is compassionate and taking pity on Naomi. You know, she's saying, look, I really am so hurt by her hurt that I want to help her and stick by her. Well, true, I think she was completely committed to Naomi. But why then commit to live in Israel, worship Israel's God, until her own death? Surely when Naomi dies, Ruth can simply return back to Moab. If her loyalty is simply to Naomi... That is what she would do. You think, well, maybe uh, Ruth didn't have any other prospects in Moab. There was no family or no one she could return back to. Again, I think that is incredibly unlikely. Logically, like Orpah, it would make far more sense for Ruth to say, look, I've fallen on hard times. It's better for me to move back in with mum and dad for a while, just till when I get back on my feet. And yet she's not. (laughs) She's saying, no, I'm not moving back. I'm not moving back to Moab, not to mum and dad, not to no one. Her commitment to this future life of hers is total and permanent. Why? What is it that drives this woman to this point in her life go to that extreme length? Well, I believe there's only one thing. She fell in love with the God of Israel. We don't know how. Was it because of Naomi or uh, Naomi's son's good witness to her? Was it because of probably all of the above? uh, God working powerfully and miraculously in her heart. But I have no doubt that at this point in the story, Ruth is coming to faith. (laughs) God is drawing her To himself, Carolyn Custis James, the the lady who writes the book that Pathway Women is doing, says this, Ruth 
discovered in Yahweh, the pearl of greatest price. And she leaves everything behind to follow him. She might lose the world, but she has saved her soul. The road to Bethlehem marks a stupendous moment. The miraculous redirecting of a human heart that only God can cause. (laughs) Ruth, for whatever reason, is clinging to Naomi. But more than that, she's clinging to Naomi's God. Your God will be my God. Church, you know what the writer wants us to see here? (laughs) He wants us to see that there is an incredible contrast here. The, the woman of God, the one who's, who, who's the churchgoer, who's the Christian, responds in a completely different way to the woman who's not the churchgoer, the non-Christian, if you like. The way that they respond to their suffering is completely different. Remember, Ruth has suffered in so many ways every bit as much as Naomi. She too has lost her husband. We can't prove it, but we are fairly certain that Ruth most likely was barren, couldn't have children. Cue is that they've been married 10 years. We're not sure whether the 10 years in verse 1 is from when they arrived in Moab or since after she married one of Naomi's sons. But for 10 years they lived there. Usually when that expression is used in Scripture, it's to signify barrenness. So there's every possibility that her suffering and her affliction is every bit as bad as Naomi's. And yet her response is the total opposite. (laughs) She says, God can do it. God can pull me through this. I'm confident. And I want to bring us back to that question then. In your own suffering, responding to what's not right in your own life, Who are you? Naomi or Ruth? Who would you like to be in the midst of your pain? Church, God invites you this morning. In fact, more than that, I pray that he moves us this morning to be like Ruth. You know, in some ways, we have to be like Naomi and we'll explain that more later, and we are, and it's not like Naomi's bad, Ruth is good, but we do want to be ultimately in this position where we say, (laughs) we believe God can do it. No matter how bad life may seem, how hopeless, how dire, how desperate, cling to God. When Naomi realized on that road that Ruth was determined to go with her. She stopped urging her. And the two women, we read, go along and eventually they make their way back to Bethlehem. Population sizes in small towns like that probably were about 200, 250. So the gossip grapevine immediately is alive and buzzing. Everyone's saying, can this be Naomi? She's back. Naomi's response, again, true to form, is so bluntly honest. Look at what she says to the people. Don't call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. Call me Mara, 
because I'm bitter. Why? The Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Again, the Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune on me. I once heard a story of a Christian woman who, who was raped, told her pastor that, these are her words, God did this to me to teach me a lesson. You know how often we are tempted to think along this way? God has caused my marriage to fail. God is causing us to be infertile. God has allowed me to fall in this addiction. God is keeping me single. God has raped me. Do you know that's more or less what Naomi is saying at this point? God has taken my husband and my sons. Just the truth is that God does not rape people. God does not kill sons. Sin does that. The name of God is mentioned 23 times in the book of Ruth. Twice, only twice, is the name connected to something that God has done directly. The other 21 times, God is spoken of. In other words, what the characters thought he was doing, their impression of what he was doing. Only twice has God actually done something. Do you know what those two times are? Chapter 1, verse 6, the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. Spoiler alert for later on. Chapter 4, verse 13, Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive. God gave bread. God gave life. God is good. You know, the mystery and the hurt and the pain of our circumstances are things that confuse us. In a sense, it's true that God has allowed the hurt to come over Naomi, but he did not cause it. The only things he caused in the entire story was to give bread and to give life. And so we read in verse 22, Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, as the barley harvest was beginning. This is where the chapter ends. And it's a note of hope. It leaves us out of the darkness into just a slither of light. The barley harvest was beginning. Let me wrap up before I pray, just by pulling all of this together and give you summary points. If you're a note taker, this is your moment. What can we learn 
from this story today. Let's be like Naomi in some things. Let's be like her in honesty about our feelings. Get real with God. Don't fake it. Let's be like her in her belief in the sovereignty of God. He is sovereign. He is in full control of everything, things we understand and things we don't. Let's be like her in, as best we can tell, being a real positive witness to her daughters-in-law. You've got to marvel at the beauty of this. These are in-laws who are so faithful, so broken, so in love with this mother-in-law. And as we've said before, for all we know, Ruth's confidence in Yahweh is due to her witness in earlier years before suffering and affliction struck. May we be like that too. May our in-laws be the same. May we be the same in their lives. My mum-in-law's here, so I, she's definitely that to me. <laughs> Let's be unlike Naomi, perhaps, as much as we can understand and sympathize why she reacted the way she did, but let's be perhaps unlike her in failing to trust that God is good even when life really hurts. If you were to ask the question from Naomi's perspective, why am I suffering? She would have asked herself this question. Why am I suffering? One writer says we can answer that question with one word. In fact, one name. Ruth. Ruth. You know, God gave her Ruth. Not only to support her, and sustain her and help her through her bitter time on earth in the physical present realities as we shall see in the rest of the story, but also to become one of the most important people in human history. You see, it's through this girl, Ruth, who generations later in that tiny little town of Bethlehem, the house of bread, that the bread of life, All of humanity is born. She stands in a lineage. She becomes a great-great-grandmother of the one who brings us here today. Naomi had no idea that he whose ways are higher than hers, he whose thoughts are grander than hers, through this suffering and through this misery, is orchestrating something so much bigger than she could ever have imagined. And the only thing that was called from her is the same thing that's called from you as you go through this suffering, is trust him. Cling to him. You may not see it. You may not understand it today why God is allowing the bad things that are happening to you to happen (laughs) Trust him. His ways are higher than your ways. His thoughts are grander than yours. And know that he's good. Trust him. 
even if you don't understand as much as it hurts. And then lastly, let's be like Ruth. God has given her to us. Let's be like Ruth in our our firm and resolute commitment to Jesus. Love what Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, verse 62. He talks about anyone who would follow him, who would come after him. And he says, no one who puts his hand to the plough looks back, is fit for the kingdom of God. If we want to follow Jesus, he says to us, follow me like she did. Love me like she did. Commit to me like she did. And as my final words, may I paraphrase her words and apply them to us in our commitment to Jesus. May each and every one of us in God's good time say this. Jesus, where you want me to go, I will go. Where you want me to be in life, there I'll be. Your people will be my people, and you, O God, will be my God. Where you bid me die, there I'll die. And to you, I'll belong forever. Let's pray. Father, I bring to you this morning some here who are suffering miserably, who are facing hurt upon hurt upon hurt. The Naomi's among us. And Lord, I pray that in their encounters with you, there'll be incredible honesty, perhaps at a level that has never happened before. And I ask that out of that honesty, Lord, you in your grace and mercy will be to them who you've been to Naomi. That this might be a journey that takes them from emptiness to fullness. Father, I want to pray for those to whom life is going well at the moment. Thank you for that. Thank you for the fullness that they have. May we forever be grateful. And Father, I want to ask for those of us who can perhaps identify with Ruth this morning. Give us her remarkable faith, we pray. Let us look upon whatever circumstances we face with the certainty that you gave her, that you can and you will provide because you are a good God. May we as a church, Father, collectively be like Ruth. May we look upon our future, everything that faces us, and look with confidence, knowing that you're good, you're powerful, and you love us. Thank you, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. I believe our music team is up next.